So as you all know, uh, the first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And if you've been following the news, you know that that is correct. (laughs) That we suffer in so many different ways. And suffering is different than pain. Pain is sort of that physical reaction. But suffering is this sort of mental dissatisfaction with the way our particular life is going. We're really lucky because nobody else has had our life. So we don't know what to expect or how to live it as skillfully as we could And oftentimes, we live our life depending on the results. So you do something, and then you wait for the results to happen. And then you realize you've been really skillful or really unskillful. But by that time, it's too late. So I think it starts with, like, getting an ego. You know, around three months or six months into our life, our ego starts to be formed. And... It's the first sense of separation from the world that we really experience. Until then, the world just embraced us. We were the world, the world was us. But now we have this little thing that tells us we have to manipulate the world. We have to be in control of the world. It's up to us to have a good life. And the only way we're going to have a good life is to be proactive in it. So our parents, you know, tell us what to do, and our school tells us what to do, and our boss tells us what to do, and our partners tell us what to do, and pretty soon we're just doing what they say, and it's still not working out very good. So maybe we'll take the lead and say, well, I'm going to do it my way, and of course my way is the ego way, and that's not really very skillful sometimes either, And then we find Buddhism. And we go, wow, yeah, and the Buddha talked about all this stuff. He said, even if you get what you want, ultimately it will be unsatisfactory. Because ultimately what you want will change into something you don't want. Like when I look in the mirror, I'm thinking I'm changing into something I don't like. What can I do? Not a thing except surrender to the image looking back at me. We also have this idea that if we just tweak this or that, make this a little different, make that a little different, everything will be perfect. So we're always trying to make good better and better perfect, and we always fail. Because there's no perfection. Everything is only momentary. Somebody asked me today, how is your month going? I said, well, it's pretty good. But I'm sort of more of a day-by-day guy instead of a month-by-month guy. And, and so today's good, you know, so far it's not too hot, the cats are happy, everybody's been fed, and then we'll see what the rest of the day has to offer. But if I have high expectations for my day, I often become disappointed when the day doesn't meet those expectations, suffering. The Buddha said, Our primary cause for suffering is the fact that we have attachment and aversion. We have desire and craving. We have this personal drive to have a wonderful moment in our life. 
And so we'll change things, we'll think things out. And that desire, it can't be ever satisfied. I found that out when I became a monk, you know. And when you become a monk, you have to be like celibate. And you figure, well, you know, one day it'll go away, you know. (laughs) And then you'll just be able to look at all these people and just have equanimity. And, you know, it just doesn't work like that. For a long time, Jennifer Lopez, you know, she was just the trigger, you know. I go, man. So... I'm sort of working past that now. And we'll let A-Rod handle that. You know? But it's fascinating. It's fascinating that it's so deeply rooted. And I suppose it needs to be because our job is to replicate. And seven billion people later, we're still replicating. And whatever happened to population control? That's what I want to know. Remember the good old days back in the 60s, you know? We have too many people. We need to do something about it. You know? And they actually, at one time in India, at the train stations, were giving away transistor radios to anybody that would be spayed or neutered. You know? And I don't think they gave very many away, because now in India there's a billion people and a lot more trains. So you just go, wow, wow. And you can't get past it. So you sort of have to live with it. You have to look at all those delusions created by the need to replicate and just be so fascinated that nature, in its profound wisdom, has figured out how to overpopulate this planet. And it's doing such a good job. And here we are. And one day, there may not be enough water, there may not be good air, there may not be a lot of things, but it won't hinder our need to replicate. We'll still be doing our part. So I said to myself, desire, craving, man, it's so deeply rooted. And how am I ever going to work with it? How am I ever just going to look at it and not have it manipulate me, but just hold it and rest in its profound creativity? It gives me so many new ways of looking at things and doing things, but all to one end, to satisfy that desire to satisfy the need that's been created because I was born and then eventually I'll have to die. But in between that birth and death, I get to suffer a whole lot and want a whole lot of things. You know? And then you get all the things, right? And you just go, wow, look at all the things I've got. I don't know, you know, most guys, they like watches. And I'd be surprised if, well, may I should say in my day, because now you got cell phones, you don't even have a watch. But in my day, watches were really cool. And you'd have five or six watches. And you just marvel at the complexity. You know, all those little gears and wheels, and they'd be turning. And, and, and their whole job was to turn at a continual speed so we could know what time it is. That's all it did. It just had the hands going in a big circle all the time. And sometimes if you had the right battery, you got four or five years. Then they have the Citizen EcoDrive, which uses light. You never have to change the battery. It'll last longer than you will and keep really good time. And you go, oh, man, this is so cool. And they're getting really big now. They're like as big as your wrists, and they're really heavy. And now they have these other watches that are smart watches that connect right to your cell phone and computer. And you can take all this information with you wherever you go. 
if you have a question about anything, you just look at your watch and it tells you what you need to know to live that next moment or that next minute or that next hour. Our craving, our desire, our attachment, our aversion has created a world of complexity beyond imagination. And here we are, all stuck being separate from it so we can understand it and intellectualize it and make it always more than one, two or more. If it's only one, we're not going to understand it. I had a woman come up to me at a talk I gave at a church, and she said, I'd like to share something with you. I said, great, okay. She said, I figured out what God is. I said, really? Okay, please tell me. Because, you know, as a Buddhist, we don't ever go there. So none of us know what God is. She said, God is one. I said, wow, but how about two? What happens when you get to two? No, God is one. And I said, well, you know, that's one way of looking at it. I didn't want to make her feel uncomfortable with that deep insight she had. You know, but I look at one and I think, you know, it's sort of a Jewish concept, one. It's sort of the concept of God, according to the Jewish tradition, because before the Jewish tradition... There wasn't one, there was many. There was a hierarchy of gods. In India, for instance, we had many gods. And some were really strong and powerful, and some were just little and didn't have much to do. And then they figured out it was one, the one God. And now we have it on our money, one God. Whoa, it went from the Bible to the money. How cool is that? You know, so now we all know it's one. But then you try to describe one without using two, and it's really difficult. It's like trying to describe everything and nothing. Both have the same definition. One is fullness, one is emptiness. The Buddhists prefer not to have much to think about, so we go to emptiness. We don't want fullness. We don't want everything. That is so hard to comprehend. Let's talk about nothing. It's so easy. We just sit in nothingness. And that's our reality. That's our ultimate reality. And, of course, what nothing is, it turns out, is nothing is connected to everything. And there it is. Nothing and everything. Interconnection, interdependence. God, maybe. Profound insight, maybe. Nothing to talk about, probably. So... She left happy because she figured out what God was. I was still confused and went and had a cup of coffee. But that's just me. So we have this profound problem of suffering. We have the reason we suffer because we have craving and desire and attachment and aversion that will never end as long as we have our human condition And then the Buddha said, aha, I have an end. It is found within the human condition because you are human. Dogs can't have it. Cats can't have it. Fish can't have it. But you, being a human being and having a mind and an intellect and a duality and a oneness, you can find and you can have the answer to your suffering. And I will name it Nirvana. Wow. Cool. So not only did he tell us why we suffer and what our suffering looks like 
he told us how to end it. He said, I found the end. I found a way never to have to suffer again. I found a way never to have to be reborn again. I found a way to end my karma. Now, the first one, not having to suffer, is pretty easy to understand. We'd all like that. But, but not having to be reborn again? How cool is that? Now, being in the West, rebirth doesn't have much value. We don't think of rebirth as, as being something we've already done. We think of heaven forever with all our pets and family. And it's really nice, and the weather's always great. <laughs> you know, that's the place we want to go. And if we end up in hell, we may not have our dogs and our pets and really good weather, but we'll have some fascinating people to talk to. <laughs> so the Buddha said, you know, there's one other way to look at it, that this is just a continuation. Birthday, happy continuation day. This is just a way we continue in our many forms, from birth to birth, death to death. And I now, because I have discovered nirvana, teach the path to immortality. You know, the Taoists always wanted that immortality. They'd have alchemy, and they'd create things, and they would live three or four hundred years They never got to live forever. That wasn't part of it. But have you seen somebody who's like 150 years old? Would you want to be that? (laughs) I don't think so. And can you imagine 300 years old? Just trying to get around and do the laundry? Yeah. (laughs) So the Buddha said, you know, we're just on this clock where we're born and then we die and in between we suffer and then we get to be reborn again. And the thing that gets to be reborn is not your soul, or yourself. We don't talk much about soul because the Buddha talked about the middle way, and soul seems to be the eternal way. But he said, between birth and death, karmic energy migrates. So all the things we've thought about in this lifetime, all the words we have spoken, all the actions we have done, has created an energy that we call karma. We've taken a neutral energy in the universe and we've given it a moral or ethical value and that's sort of what follows us through our life and continues into the next life. Which for me gave me real good insight into why some people are born into just great families and some not so great. Perhaps because of their past karma being one of the factors, but not the only factor. But the cool thing about karma is we're always in charge, and what we do today creates tomorrow. So if you don't like your life today, do something about it. That is so cool. We're not victims. It's not predestined in Buddhism. It's not fatalistic. Every day is the first day of our life. And if we have good thoughts, good speech, and good action, we'll have a better tomorrow. So our job is to sort of like work really hard on what we think, say, and do, which is our karma, because that's the very thing that migrates lifetime to lifetime that gives us 
our future rebirth. But then the Buddha said, he said, when you achieve nirvana, you end your karma. And if you end your karma, there's no way to be reborn again. Now, that may not be a big seller because people want to exist in some way. Even if it's a terrible way, they prefer existence over non-existence. But when you think about all the lifetimes you have lived, all the pets you have buried, all the family members you have been to funerals, and you just look at that, and it never changes. You know, all, every lifetime we've had, if we've lived long enough, we've buried our parents. And we've buried 10 or 12 pets at least. And it's been sort of a sad commentary on human life because we keep losing all these people along the way. Now, next month, I'm not going to be here on the fourth Sunday. I'll be in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'll be at my 50th annual high school reunion. 50 years. The last time I saw these kids, they were a bunch of teenagers. Now they're a bunch of senior citizens. Wow. And somehow, a lot of them made it, but a lot of them didn't make it. Because back then, 1967, 1966, Vietnam War, draft. You get out of high school, they got you. Take, you know, draft notice, go in for your physical, get your card. So a lot of people died in the war. So they won't be there, but they'll be in memory. And a lot of people will be there, but they'll be in different states of physical health and mental health. Because 50, 60 years on this planet takes its toll. Have you ever been on a long trip and then pulled over for, to a rest stop to go to the restroom and watch people get out of their cars? Man, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're limping, they're bent over, they can barely make it. They, they've been sitting for eight hours in their car. And I just looked at that one time, and I just said, man, look how life takes its toll on this poor body of ours. And then you finally get into the restroom, and nothing happens. And you go, damn. <laughs> you just <laughs> life is a challenge at any point, you know, whether it be young, middle, or old. Life is a challenge. But... If we achieve nirvana, we'll never have to be reborn again and never have to go through all this stuff again. And I have come to the conclusion what nirvana is is simply a parallel way to exist in this universe. It's not non-existence. It's existence without birth, which is just an amazing concept because everything on this planet had a beginning. It had a start. It was born, everything. And because it was born, it had to die. And I think what the Buddha did is he figured out a way to be born without being born. Nirvana is not birth. Nirvana is not death. If you are in nirvana, you are neither born nor you die. You are simply existing in a very unique way. I like that concept. You can use that if you like. I think that's a cool way of looking at it. So we want to go to a place that we don't have to be born into so we don't have to die out of it. But earth is where you are born. Earth is where you die. They call earth samsara. This is the place birth and death occurs. So everything you see on this planet is going to be dead one day. Even those mountains will turn into sand given enough time. 
And those 500-year-old trees, they'll have to fall one day as well. And those, the 50th annual high school reunion, those people will have to fall as well, much sooner than the tree and the mountain, of course. So the Buddha said, this is how I got to nirvana. This is how I realized I was already there. So see, it's not the kind of journey that has the destination. It's the kind of journey that you wake up to. You're already there. We're already all in nirvana right now, just like we're all in L.A. right now. Some of us don't know it, though. Some of us feel that maybe this is Pacoima. And, and then the person next to you says, no, this is L.A. And then, how do you tell? How do you know it's nirvana? Because it seems like samsara. So the idea with the Eightfold Path is to wake up to the fact that you are already there. The path and destination turn out to be pretty much the same thing. So he said, I have the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is what I rediscovered. Every Buddha before me, 27 of them, according to the Theravada tradition, discovered and rediscovered the same path. I have rediscovered the path to nirvana. It is called the Eightfold Path. It is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And you can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. So in personal discipline, we have right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right speech. There are four kinds of wrong speech that we want to avoid in order to have right speech. Wrong speech. False, malicious, harsh, gossip, or idle chatter. Those are the four kinds of speech we want to avoid, so we will always have skillful speech. We don't want to undermine the reality of the person we're speaking to. That was one of the insights I had, is when you listen to the news or people in power, they always seem to want to undermine your reality. They're always telling you stuff you're really not quite sure of. But they're doing it in such a convincing way, it becomes your truth as well. And at some point in our practice, in our meditation practice, we don't want to give our truth away to people. We want to have our truth. And a wise person can listen and have conflicting ideas, but not make them real or their own. They simply other ways of looking at the same thing. We don't necessarily have right and wrong, true or false, That's created by consensus. If enough people think it's true, then it becomes true. 1977, speed limit, 55 55 miles an hour. That became a truth. Everybody was understood that that was the ultimate truth on the freeway, 55. And now it's 65 and 70. So our truth has changed because we have more gas to burn and our cars get better mileage, and so we can go faster, and that's become our truth. That's like a relative truth. And most of the world works on relative truth. But this practice that we're doing, this meditation that we're doing, this is going after the ultimate truth. Wow, this is the ultimate truth we're working on. And the irony of the ultimate truth is the woman who found God in one 
the ultimate truth can't be expressed in words because words are always dualistic and create thoughts. And thoughts are dualistic. We always need to have one to have two. We need to have short to have tall. We need to have all that kind of stuff. Relative truth, intellectual truth, but there's also an intuitive truth that becomes ours through our meditation practice that doesn't have that duality. We simply know rather than understand it to be true. I think. So I, I make a distinction between knowing as intuitive and understanding as intellectual, knowing as interconnection, understanding as always being dualistic. So we have that. So we have the speech, and the speech is always dualistic. It always refers to relative truth. We have gone to school and read many books and encyclopedias and dictionaries to get a giant vocabulary which allows us to take apart the one and make the many. Okay, which is, so that's cool, and it works well because it allows us to relate to each other in a special way. And we can work together because of language. Okay, so right speech, right action. There are a couple kinds of action that are unskillful that we want to avoid, so we're always skillfully active. One is killing. We don't want to kill stuff. And it's difficult because it's pretty easy to kill stuff. And sometimes you kill stuff without even knowing you're killing stuff. Like the other day I was cleaning up and there was this daddy long leg spider. And it was like at the bottom of a box and it was, had this little web and it was waiting for <laughs> its lunch. And I thought to myself, wow, I can't just throw this box away. So I took the spider in my hand and put him in a tree. And that way the spider is going to have more chances of having lunch than in the box. I thought to myself, and I felt good about that. And I just posted on my Facebook page about a woman who bought a salad. I don't know if you've been to my Facebook page in the last couple of days, but she went and she bought a vegetarian salad at a store. And as she's going through the salad and just about to stick her fork into some lettuce, there was a little frog in there. Just a little guy, covered in oil and vinegar. <laughs> and, and so I, the average person, I don't know, they might have probably killed the frog and, you know, and had a lawsuit against the store and made a million dollars. But she had this sort of compassionate side to her, and the little frog started to have... Uh, a stroke or something, a heart attack. It was just too much. And so her husband got his little finger and started doing CPR on the little frog. (laughs) And it came back to life. And they kept the frog as a little pet. And so this was was a Channel 5 TV news section. and, And it showed the little frog now in this box, very happily alive. I don't know if they finished the salad or not. But I thought, what a, a creative way to deal with that surprise. It wasn't one of spite or hate. It was one of, how can we save this little life and still have dinner? And they did. So not killing can take a whole lot of time, but it can get you on TV as well. <laughs> and I really like that. That's why I posted it on Facebook. It's not killing, not stealing. A lot of stealing going on lately. Everybody's got cameras, you notice that? And those 
AM, PM, mini markets, man, they're getting hit all the time. And now you got those, you know, a knock-knock, you know, guys that go on your door and then they break in and steal all your stuff. And everybody's like stealing stuff all the time now. Maybe they did it before, but we didn't have as many cameras. Now we got cameras. And so they have little masks on and they have hoodies on and they're, they got three cars and there's like a whole, oh, man. And I'm thinking, you know, it's stuff. They're going to steal $100,000 worth of stuff and sell it for 1000 you know, and then, they're, uh, then they don't have any money, they got to steal again, they got to get again. And so some of us decided to work instead of stealing. And we don't get as much at one time, but better longevity in our job than stealing. And the consequences are just getting fired rather than put in jail. So it's not quite as bad. So stealing isn't good because it causes people to suffer a lot because people think they own their stuff. And, and, of course, they don't, you know. That's the thing. They're just using their stuff until somebody steals it. So, so here they have all this stuff, and they got their receipts, and they're really happy, and they protect it, and they clean it, and they store it, and they dust it. And, and, and then in about 10 years, they wonder why they still have all that stuff that they've never used for the last five years, and maybe we should give it away or just throw it away. And we'll get more stuff to take its place, better stuff, newer stuff, iPhone 8 is coming out, $999. I'm going, man, for a phone. I got a landline and a $15 phone, and it works fine. But iPhone is iPhone. So there are going to be people out there buying their $1,000 phone. And no wonder people are stealing cell phones. They, they, they take your money and, and your phone now. You know, Sometimes they just take your phone. $1,000. So, number three, no sexual misconduct. This is a tough one. L.A. <laughs> what aren't we supposed to do? Four things. We're not supposed to do four things. So they are, we're not supposed to have sex with people who are married. We're not supposed to have sex with people who are engaged. We're not supposed to have sex with children who are being supported by their parents. We're not supposed to have sex with people against their will. That's it. Can we do it? I don't know. You watch TMZ, we can't do it. There's just, I don't know what it is, you know? Wow, great-looking wife, I wonder. You know what I'm saying? And then divorce, alimony, thousands of dollars. I think one of the reasons the Buddha made those things specifically against uh, skillful activity is because he was a dad and he was a husband. And he realized the family unit was the building blocks of our society. You know, the family is what sort of starts and keeps things going. And it's really hard to find that person. I'm doing a wedding next month, and we talked about this for like an hour and a half. I'm saying, you guys found each other. How lucky are you? And they weren't really impressed by that, you know. I said, how did you guys meet? Well, it was my mother. And I said, okay, well, that's a good way to meet. Moms are pretty good at picking out spouses, you know. And, and then they're getting married, and, and they're not quite sure about the commitment and the longevity of the commitment and how they're supposed to get along with all the stuff that goes wrong and goes right. 
And so we had some really interesting metaphors, analogies, stories that we all shared with each other about the challenge of creating a relationship and continuing that relationship. So if you're not in a relationship, I guess you just don't do those other four things and just have sex anyway. And then we get seven billion people. Even doing sex the right way, seven billion people. So enjoy your sex and make room for all those other people who will be coming soon. You don't think we have parking problems now? Just wait another 20 years. We're going to have like 10 million people looking for parking. Man. Okay. Pretty easy stuff. Right action, right speech, right livelihood may not be quite as easy. We want to do something that allows us to support ourselves and our family, but reduces suffering as a Buddhist. Can we figure out how to reduce suffering and make a living? And this is a challenge because a lot of people go to college and they spend a whole lot of money to make a lot of money. And some of the choices they make may not be the most skillful and may create more suffering rather than less. Maybe hedge fund managers isn't the best way to go. But you'll have a lot of paper money. You'll be able to spend it any way you want. But will it really reduce suffering? And there's nothing wrong with making money. Please make as much money as you can. But give some of it away. You know? That's the best part about having too much money is you can actually give some away and not ruin your lifestyle. So Bill Gates and all these other people, they created foundations so they could give their money away in a a logical, personal way, in the way they wanted to. And I thought to myself, what would I do if I got like $2 million? What would I spend it on? And then it just became so obvious, Holly, It would be supporting all these pets in these shelters. Make L.A. a non-kill city. Just have so much money that they could just keep the pets as long as they needed to. That'd be a great way for me to spend my money. And then other people could spend their money in a different way. And all us together could make this world just a little bit better. Then we found it. So don't don't try to make less money. Try to make as much money as you can give some of it away, and find a job that reduces suffering rather than increases suffering. Okay, that's how it starts. Then out of all that comes the five precepts. Five precepts are, and you know it by heart now, five precepts I will practice. Word practice is really important. It's not a commandment. I will practice not to take life. I will practice not to take what is not given. I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will practice not to speak unskillfully. I will practice not to become intoxicated. Last one's a tough one. You know, the wedding, going to go to the wedding, they're going to be drinking. They like to drink at weddings. It's a way of celebrating. But as a practicing, meditating Buddhist, would drinking be the best way to go? Would it alter your consciousness in a way that makes you more skillful or less skillful? Would it alter your consciousness in a way that you could break the other four precepts and not even know you did? 
it's something to think about. And as we come into 2018 and marijuana is going to be legal, and I know a lot of people think it has medicinal qualities, and perhaps it does, but it also is a way to get high, again, and alter your consciousness. And will it alter your consciousness in a way that makes you more insightful and more kind? I think that's what you really got to think about when you consume intoxicants. Am I hurting my insight that I've worked so hard to acquire on the cushion? I've sat now for weeks and months and years in pain and suffering on that cushion just to get a little insight into the true nature of my life. And do I want to just throw that all away and forget it? Just give it up. And sometimes it comes back, you know, after the hangover. Sometimes it comes back and you're right where you started. But oftentimes you're not back to where you started. You have, you're back another 10 steps where you started and you have to go and just keep working on it, you know. So the five precepts are tough, but there are training precepts. There are not commandments. And the consequences of breaking the precepts is more suffering rather than less. That's all. So you get high and you just suffer more than you should have. Or could have. And then you're going to go, okay, well, that's cool. And it's worth suffering more because it was such a wonderful experience. It was so good to be out in the desert, burning man, 10,000 people, sand. You know, yeah, okay. But it's an altered state of consciousness, which really appeals to people. You know, they get tired of having their just regular consciousness. So I understand. But, you know, meditation can alter your consciousness, too. And you don't, and there's no hangover. It's just really good stuff.